My name is Mary Conquest. I'm your host for Safety Labs by Slice, the podcast where we explore the human side of safety to support safety professionals. We move past regulations and reportables to talk about the core skills of safety leadership, empathy, influence, trust, rapport, in other words, the soft skills that help you do the hard stuff. Welcome to Safety Labs by Slice. I speak to a lot of guests on this show about the importance of developing trust with employees and management. Today's guest believes that trust really starts with authenticity. But while the word authenticity has been bandied around as a marketing buzzword in the past few years, what does it really mean? How is it achieved and why is it important for workplace safety? I'll discuss these questions and more with Chris Molden. Chris is currently the VP of HSC Utility Segment at Primora Services. He has 14 years experience in the safety field and is recognized for his ability to build positive relationships in culturally diverse communities. He describes himself as an entrepreneurial leader who uses a strategic lens to advise on global health and safety issues. Chris is a certified safety management specialist and a Canadian registered safety technician. He prides himself on working with integrity, passion, and a value-driven cultural mindset. Chris joins us from Lake Forest, California. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So when we first spoke, I asked you, what gets you excited about safety? And your response surprised me. Do you remember what it was? (laughs) I've got it if you don't. Well, it probably had something to do with uh, not safety. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You said you're not excited about safety, but then you clarified that you were the number one risk taker in the United States and should probably be working for Red Bull. (laughs) Yeah, that wraps it up right there. (laughs) So how does that perspective help you in your safety work, though? Well, I think being that I'm able to know, know what that risk looks like or know what that behavior might look like. It's really easy for me to identify it out there in the field, identify it with my peers, identify it with the groups that I work with. So I think that's definitely a strong suit with what I bring to the table. Yeah. And you also talked about how your passion is really more in the leadership realm. I mean, you're a safety professional, yes, but leadership is kind of what gets you excited. Yes. To me, it's all about leadership and, you know, using the buzzwords. It's like it's authentic leadership. Like it's very important that most people understand that just because you got a title, that that doesn't make you the leader. Like there's a huge delineation between title and leadership. And sometimes, sometimes, maybe more times than not, they do converge, but title does not dictate who the leader is. So what is authenticity? Let's break that down. So I think I guess in my terms, authenticity is being true to yourself. So in anything that you're doing, you're, you're operating from the lens that it resonates with who you are as a human being. And if you feel that however you're being, it doesn't feel right, then I would say that you're not working or operating from an authentic lens. I guess uh, maybe a, a good example of, of being authentic would be, or inauthentic, would be asking someone how they're doing and then just scurrying on to the next question, not not waiting for them to answer. It's like, that would be an if, inauthentic question. Folks and people understand and they can see that they almost smell, like don't waste my time and energy asking a question if you're not interested in knowing what I'm up to or what's going on in my life. So I, I think in terms of defining authenticity, I think for me, it's best to define it 
in story or in like in how it has affected me or how I've seen it. So that leads to how has it shown up in your life? How how has it affected you and, and why do you feel that it's important? How has it shown up in my life? So I, I know for many years, especially my, my younger years of growing up, there was a story that I I believed in my life that I didn't know that I was believing this, but I, you know, with some further discovery, self-discovery, realized that there was this inner narrative that I was more or less agreeing with that I wasn't enough or I wasn't able to get what I needed in life or I was stupid or whatever. And so when I recognized that this was just an inner narrative that I was agreeing with and it didn't resonate with who I truly was, like from the core of my being, I was able to uh, eradicate that more or less that worldview of myself. And so then from being able to get rid of that worldview opened up a lot for me in my life in terms of possibility and, and things of that nature. And so I guess to clarify that answer is I found that authenticity showed up in my life when I recognized that I was stopped in my tracks and I couldn't move any further because of this inauthentic belief for myself that literally had me subconsciously sub-sabotaging constantly and showing that, hey, see, that inner narrative is true. And and then once I realized, wait a second, that it's a full internal mind game. And once I was able to get rid of that, then my life blossomed. So what I'm hearing is when a person is looking for their authenticity or their authentic self, really more often than not, we're getting in our own way. Would you say that's accurate? Or do you think it's like, do you think it's the world that pressures us to be inauthentic? Or do you think it's really more of an internal battle? Well, good question. So 100% it's an internal battle. And so what happens is, I believe, is there's a divide at some point. At some point, we got to recognize we're either going to take charge of our life or we're going to take that little victim card and stick it in our pocket and say, hey, you know, life has been caused on me. Like someone caused my life to be this way. And the moment that you relinquish that control, then I would subscribe to that you are now living inauthentically. But so I guess that would take me down the road that it's really important, at least for my person, for who I am, is that I subscribe to that all things in my life that happened to me, both negatively and positively, I at some level was causing the matter. And so when I can dissect that and take a look at that and reflect back on what that looks like, then I actually have the ability to continuously improve myself as a human being in any area of my life. But the moment that I choose not to take responsibility for all things in my life, and I know that's a radical statement because there's a lot of things that seem like they're imposed on you. And I also want to say that just to further clarify this, you know, when you're three years old, you don't really have control of that, right? Like you, you're going to be put in situations that are going to shape who you are. But once you start to get into your teenage years and your, your younger 20s and you start to want to have a little bit more self-discovery, that for me, that really rang true. Yeah, of course. Like you're in no way saying that people who are actual victims are at fault. It's more about the resilience of how you deal with situations. But it seems to me that that puts you as a leader searching for that authenticity in a pretty vulnerable state. Do you think that that has something to do with why? I I don't know. I mean, maybe there isn't a lot of inauthenticity, but I think we all feel that there's a lot of inauthenticity generally in the world. Well, you know, I've not done a study on the whole world. It's a lot of people, but I would say that you're probably pretty accurate there. And I think that inauthenticity probably is driven from the foundation that there's a lot of fear. Like we're all scared. You know, we just came off a two and a half year of 
a lot of fear, a lot of fear driven, you know, everything's just fear, 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 everything. So, you know, I, I think to a certain extent, all of us are going to be experiencing a level of PTSD about fear. And so that fear really, I think, is the the culprit of creating uh, an inauthentic environment because I believe that an inauthentic environment is really someone trying to put a face on or trying to mask what they think might not be what people want to see or or whatnot. And again, when you and then when you boil it down and, and really look at it, it's coming from the foundation that people are scared or there or there's a fear driven culture that's taking seed or has taken seed and it's blossoming. Yeah. So COVID is an interesting case study, unlike anything any of us have lived through before, where a lot of people were forced into a situation of self-reflection and a lot of the trappings of the exterior world, we were literally (laughs) shut in for a while there. So how would you tie this then? So for authenticity, you need to work on self-discovery and that work involves vulnerability because you have to confront these stories that you're telling yourself. How do you tie that to workplace safety? Like, where is the link that this is really going to affect your professional life? Like you said earlier, I, I believe that it affects safety from a leadership perspective. So we are in a world right now where I want to say safety has matured and, and a lot of organizations are becoming more sophisticated. And, and it's truly about you know process and all that, but, but it's truly about, a le- I believe, a leadership commitment and how you're leading your people. And so if the leader is, is coming from a space or a place where something is more important than the person, however, they still say that the person is the most important thing, then it's going to be a ripple effect. So in, authenticity is extremely important, at least from the, at, at a minimum, which is a big ask, is to have the uh, leaders of the organization in all different levels coming from a place that there is a, a genuine, authentic concern for the people of the organization. And then from there, you can safety is kind of like a byproduct of creating a nice, a good, safe environment. And when I say safe environment, I don't mean like making sure everyone has their proper PPE and all that, but like creating a safe environment, like kind of a a psychosocial safe environment where folks feel free to bring up up concerns, free of reprisal and and things of that nature. But again, without an authentic leadership design or without authentic leaders, you'll never get there. Uh, I know you speak to groups. Have you ever had pushback on this issue? Has anyone ever said, you know, like, oh, you're being a snowflake and this is ridiculous and people will listen based on authority and that sort of thing? Yeah, I have. I'm a relatively large man. I'm I'm six two. So for whatever reason, I think my stature probably stops that in its place sometimes, which I wish it wouldn't. But I, I have. I've had people push back on that. Some of the concepts that I talk about at this organization at PSC put people back on their heels and question it. You know, it, like we're constantly questioning the status quo and and we're constantly looking at the, hey, go outside with wet hair, you're going to get sick. Like those types of things that we've totally lied to ourselves our whole life and we believed it. Like we're, we're flipping over the rocks and over the stones and over the leaves and saying, is that really the worldview we should be having? So in terms of pushback, when there is pushback, I ask, I probably am framing it more back to them in a question and in, in why, why would you be pushing back on that? Like what happened that would make this a question for you? in terms of whatever we're discussing. Yeah. Why would you start with the default that this is inaccurate or that, that it doesn't make sense? You know, I think it's really important too that everyone has a healthy level of skepticism because that actually keeps them in the inquiry, right? It keeps them in the conversation. I will sometimes, well, actually often, if I'm speaking about something that's really that really 
is meaningful and can move the needle from a cultural perspective. I will often say, what you're about to hear is one, radical, so that piques the interest. And then two, I want you to consider that everything I'm saying is not true. And so what that does is it really brings them into the conversation and, oh, okay, so you're about to tell me something that's not true. And then so what that does is it really invites a healthy level of conversation about some larger topics that maybe folks aren't really open or open to talk about typically. And again, it creates a safe environment too, because I'm kind of unloading or I'm, I'm disarming anything that would be coming my way because I've already said, you know, it's radical and, you know, just consider it's not true. And then that creates a space where they can truly choose, is this something that they want to believe in, subscribe to, and is this something that they also want to talk about with their folks? I think too, it um, in a good way sort of undermines the assumed authority of the the speaker at the front of the room. I am the speaker, I am the expert. Mm -hmm. But I think authority is really a sticky issue for safety professionals. Like on the one hand, you need authority to get people to follow safe procedures. On the other hand, no one likes an authoritarian. So it's kind of a sticky balance. And maybe that that fear comes from a fear of, of loss of authority. Hmm. Maybe I'm off base, but do you think that authority plays a big role in sort of the in the world of the safety professional? I realize they're not a monolith. Yeah. But. So yes, I do. I think the word authority comes with some negative connotation. And to be quite honest with you, it's been some time since I actually heard the word authority. <laughs> and so as you're saying that, I'm I'm I was kind of self-reflecting on how does it make me feel that I just heard that word? And the first thing that came to my mind was authoritarian, right? And so even though authority is part of the hierarchical structure, I think it's really important to be humble. I think it's really important to get down to the level that folks are interested in talking to you at. Coming from the direction of being more of a servant, flipping the org chart upside down and letting folks know that you work for them, they don't work for you. I think the higher you go up the, the organizational chain, you know, sure, it, the view is that you do less and so on and so forth. But the reality of it is, is with great power comes a huge responsibility. You know, I think the best leaders in the world, both who have who are no longer with us and who still or who are currently on this earth, like they subscribe to a, a servant leadership style where their job is to make sure that their first clients, which are the people who are reporting to them or are part of their immediate team, like that their job is to make sure that they are completely taken care of, have what they need. And I'm not saying like you gotta be egregious about what that looks like, but it's really important that when your team has what they need to do what they got to do, then you can win Super Bowls. That's how you win Super Bowls. <laughs> it actually brings me around to authenticity. So maybe like the authentic authority. So there's the authority we know like authoritarian where it's, these are the rules, don't question them. Authentic authority, the way you're talking about servant leadership, to me sounds like it's built on trust. Yeah, So it is. It's 100%. <laughs> my question is, it's sort of about authenticity. Like, I couldn't ask you to say, can you give us some tips on how to be authentic? Because I think, but maybe I'm wrong, either you're authentic, a person is authentic or they're not. Do you think it's that binary? It's that easy that, or is it a little, a little more nuanced than that? Like, I don't know. Can you teach someone to be authentic? I think you can talk to folks about what authenticity looks like. And if someone can conceptualize what it looks like, then they can maybe, you know, depart from there and say, well, what would I have to do in order for authenticity to live in my life? And so I think once you start stepping it down like that, 
make it pragmatic, then someone can, you know, authentically <laughs> see themselves from an authentic view. I believe that a lot of it has to do with stripping down all the safeguards that we've put in place to survive as human beings. And it's just, you know, at the subconscious level, these things are happening. And, and uh, a lot of us don't realize it. But when you start to realize that, or when you start to identify that there's a lot of inherited traits from a human being that we have, and that's because we are a part of the the animal kingdom that it's in us to survive, right? So a lot of a lot of the instincts that we have are are there just so that we can survive. And the moment that you look at that, you can say, "Oh, okay. Well, that's really not my goal in life is to survive." I mean, we live in the Western culture. At least it's not in my purview. I'm assuming it's not in yours either. I think most people want a little more than just survival. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, but. If a dog chases you, there's inherited traits on what you need to do. If, if, you know, there's these things. And so I think that also bleeds over into your professional life as well, you know, in the context of, okay, sure, you're not, it's no longer a life or death situation, but is it the ego now trying to survive? So now there's deeper things happening. It's the ego has worked so well for so many years to get you where you are today. And then, so how do you put that to rest? You have to look at, you know, what's working for you and what's not working for you. And if it's not, if it's genuinely not working for you, then you need to change directions. You have to pivot. You got to change directions. I mean, we're wired for fear, right? That's what chasing a dog or, you know, the the old saber-toothed tiger example is. We've got that biological wiring. And I think fear is wrapped up in the ego that you're talking about. Do you think that ego is a limiting factor in how, I don't mean job title, but how far someone can go in terms of leadership? Yes, absolutely. Because again, leadership from my worldview is not a title. And if we're conflating both of them, then you know, ego can get you quickly up a corporate ladder, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you will be leading the charge. More than likely, it'll be miserable. And more than likely, you'll wake up in the morning thinking, what is that called? Where you just don't believe that you should be sitting in, in that Imposter seat. Imposter syndrome? Imposter syndrome, yeah. yeah. More than likely, that will take seed in and then, you know, you look at all the things that happen after that. So then anxiety happens, stress happens, and then you're a perfect cocktail for sickness and all the other nasty things that could happen to you. And ultimately, you know, this is kind of, again, n- not the truth, but my view is makes it makes life a little shorter for you. Well, no, I think that's probably proven stress anyway. Yeah. So relating back to safety professionals, first of all, do you think these conversations are common amongst safety leadership? Are they common now? Are they more common than they used to be? Are they not as common as they should be? Is the conversation happening? I think that it's happening to a certain extent. There's multiple different levels and I've climbed, you know, I was a field safety representative to safety manager, project manager, all that stuff. And I think at that level, it may not be taking seed as as much as it is from say like a corporate level. But I can tell you that when I first got into this industry, you didn't hear anything about it. And now I'm pleased to know that the conversation is being had and it's really allowing the folks who maybe aren't in a corporate role to see that there's something bigger happening, something bigger at play, something bigger about their influence in the field. And there's better tools to actually influence folks from a servant leadership perspective. And again, servant leadership perspective, I guess you could say is an authentic view, is an authentic way of doing it. Do you think the role of the safety professional is changing then? Like a lot of guests I talk to talk about the traditional role as being kind of like the safety cop, you know, the person who's walking around looking for reasons to write people up and that people are afraid of them and that sort of thing. And I'm sure there are still professionals who safety professionals who operate that way. But 
Do you think it's changing in the wider industry, again, within your experience? Yes, 100% is. But you can't take away the fact that we all have it ingrained in our, in our, in us, you know, just kind of slightly taken off ramp right now. But if you think about it, when you're driving on a freeway and you see a police officer, what do you do? You're probably checking your speed. You're looking down, you're looking up. Most people look at their speedometer right away. <laughs> look at speedometer right away, right? You probably have your, all your pores open up and close real quickly. And you're like, <laughs> okay, you're looking in the rearview mirror when you pass that guy, that cop who's sitting on the side of the road and, and he, he, your blood pressure went up a bit, your heart... And you're like, and you didn't even do anything wrong. Yeah. Where did that come from? And then so they're, you know, early in my career, safety professionals reviewed like that. I mean, you could, you could see, well, you'd go out to the field and, and you can hear the, the radio racket happening and they'd have these little code words and da, 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 you know, whatever it was, you know, Hey, mama's making pie or whatever it is. And then next thing you know, like people knew to like scurry around or do something different. And so, uh, you know, back then at the very least, you knew that they knew how to do it Right. So you would see good working behaviors, and but if that word didn't get out, then you're able to see okay, there some things are maybe doing are being done a little bit differently than the expectation, and and then so I, I believe back in the day that you know the safety cop would come out and say you know write you up or I can't remember the last time I've heard of a safety professional writing someone up to be honest with you though <laughs> I mean we're, we're talking probably ten years since I've heard that. Well, that's good. I, it's just sort of a stereotype that I hear guests referring to. And I think they use it as shorthand to mean traditional command and control. Yeah. Again, if you're if you're in the safety business, you exist to serve operational an operational function. Like a safety professional, you know, unless you have your own private consulting firm, you're not out there per se generating income like maybe the folks in the warehouse and on the construction project. Your your sole job is a servant job. You are a servant of the corporation to advise and to make sure that the folks understand expectations to coach to correct where necessary that to me is a recipe for success you know you are you literally put on the same jersey as the folks in the field and you could be the you know in terms of a football team you could be the you know considered the physical therapist or the coach on the side or but no matter what it's a one team mentality and it's it's a mission first mentality and i think that we've come a long way from a belief system in terms of like safety is over there and operations is over here. And so I have really seen a convergence of, of what that looks like. And for those who are in operations that actually are open to that idea, they also realize, holy smoke. So, you know, when we're safety conscious, it actually makes our workers feel more comfortable. And when our workers are more comfortable, guess what? They're more productive. They do it right the first time. And with that being said, you know, it creates a safe environment. Morale is high. I mean, it's just a, it's just a great, great recipe for success. And then when you're doing and, and then what you realize is that when you have a safety conscious working environment, you're actually more productive. You know, sure in the beginning you might realize, oh, we got why do we gotta do this? Why do we gotta do that? But the working environment, the working experience, the employee working experience is so much better. And you can operate from a team perspective. And so what does that do for supervisors or leaders? So when you get that going, what happens is the supervisor or the leader, maybe they don't have to come in two hours before and stay two hours late because all of the stuff that they might have been doing, all of this paperwork and all that based on incidents or whatever it might be that they came in a little early, stayed a little bit late, that starts to erode. And then so what happens to the, the frontline leader or the, or the supervisor or the, or the PM or whatever it is, what happens to them is their employee experience at work actually gets better and it doesn't stop there. And then if their employee experience is getting better, they're, you know, then 
their life gets better because their life and what's most important to them, they get that gets more attention. So it's I'm not saying that safety is the silver bullet and, and has caused and created this positive environment, but for those who are open to the idea that safety is part of the team and safety can add value, doesn't take away, there's plenty of upside wins from taking that mindset on. So good safety leadership can be contagious <laughs> in a good way. It is contagious. And, and safety leadership doesn't necessarily mean you need to be a safety, actual safety professional. Safety leadership could come from your frontline leaders. I have plenty of frontline leaders, like safety is part of their DNA. You know, over here at Prime Morris, I mean, a lot of people I work for, so I work for Prime Morris, a lot of people who say safety first, right? And then you got Mike Rowe saying, no, safety third. Well, in our values proposition, we've taken the, the word primoris and we've stepped it out. So P stands for passion and R stands for resilience and I for, for inspiration, motivation, openness, reliability, integrity. And then the last one, an S, it's safety. And so what I really like about that is like oh, people, people actually, including our clients, like, well, that, you know, I don't know if I put safety last. And then some folks in the field like, well, why is safety last? And so we flipped that narrative. It's not last. It's the foundational value that holds up everything that we do. It is, it is like a thick concrete pad that holds up the support system. It needs to be something that we all believe. And, and doing safety, safety isn't something you do. It's a mindset. And so it's, a, it's just about being aware and being conscious to your environment, being conscious to who you are as a human being and how you show up for your folks, making sure that what you say is the expectation is what you do. You know, one of the things I like to say is, well, safety particular and, and, and a lot of people in leadership positions, like we're great at getting data. We're great at talking about things. But what I've come to realize is that nobody's listening. They never have and they never will. Right. That's something that I say. And it, it often gets people on the edge of their seat or maybe triggers them to maybe dig deeper into the conversation. But it, it's to me, it's true. Nobody is listening. They never have and they never will. And you might be asking yourself, Mary, like, who is this lunatic on my podcast? <laughs> no, I'm not. But the reality is like we watch, we'll, we watch and that's going to give us more information than what's actually being said. So if there is an expectation being um, spelled out, if the leader who's spelling that out is not following that expectation, the words are empty and meaningless. And truth be told, a lot of times the words are empty and meaningless. I guess at best, at best, what we do as human beings is we will take that information in, we'll, whatever's being said gets processed in the brain. We make a meaning of it. And at best, maybe that meaning that we have made internally might come close to aligning with what your intention was. And that's a tough pill to swallow, to realize that your words are minimalistic in terms of what's being said. It's more about how you're saying it and how you exemplify your expectation. So if you want to influence people, don't talk, just do. Is that a fair summary or, or am I missing something? Well, I think so. The talking at least articulates it. I think drafting it down, putting it in black and white solidifies it. But it's truly the, the visible expected outcome from leadership. Like they're, they're, they're delivering what they are being and they're doing exactly what they say is expected of those that are maybe doing the work. Like they're showing what that looks like. So for instance, if it's, say you have something in your organization where you were, and from a safety perspective, hey, all incidents, report all incidents, even, even the small ones. And then you know uh, a principal of the organization or, or a leader in your organization, you know they got hurt and they don't say nothing. <laughs> and then all of a sudden that leaks out that, hey, they got hurt, they didn't say anything. 
and it meant and folks start to see that and so what what is the true message what do you think everyone will follow what is the rule of law at that point i would say it depends on how that if the safety leader has requested everything to be reported and the person hasn't reported and everyone knows they haven't reported the ball is now in the safety leader's court there's a number of ways you can react to that and i think they would have really different outcomes 100% so there's two things that happened right there's two things that need to be get you need to get to the bottom of and they're both extremely important one there's an incident that happened to what caused that incident but more importantly for me why didn't you let us know yeah and i'll tell you mary even your principles have fear and it could be fear of looking stupid it could be fear of whatever it is right so this is the whole thing of you know getting back to the the fear culture this isn't something that's proprietary to people who are new to industries or anything like that. it's all of us we're all scared you know leadership is something i'm passionate about but truly doing whatever i can do to uproot fear in anyone's life is also a, a shared passion because i think that adds a significant amount of value and quite frankly when you can get out of your fearful state of mind you also have access to authenticity. There you go. It was there all along. I I would argue the fear might even be greater the higher up you are in a in an org chart simply because you may feel that you have more at stake, right? If you're if you're on the floor and you say, "Well, I made a mistake." That's one thing. If you're the CEO or, you know, senior management, it may feel a lot scarier to admit mistakes. I am not questioning that at all. I think that you're probably 100% accurate on that. But what you more than likely rarely will see is someone in a higher up rank exposing their belly to show you that they are fearful. And one reality of it is if like a true authentic leader if they expose their belly and show like that they are human beings, it only uh, it elevates their leadership status within their team and then their team gets energized by that cuz holy, he's they are human being, yeah. right? Or you know like okay, th- this isn't an untouchable person. They, this is someone I have access to. I have access to his wisdom. I have access to them as a human being and and I can relate to this person. And then again, what that triggers is a whole host of things. It triggers empathy and triggers more of a team mentality. And it, when you can truly expose your belly and, and show yourself as a humble leader, a servant leader, like I said, people will work harder for you. They will run through walls for you. Not that that's your intention, but like for lack of better terms, like they will, they get energized. They're part of something bigger than themselves. They're part of an organization that lights them up. They have passion. Your, your employee turnover starts to, starts to minimize. I mean, these things are the byproduct of being an authentic, true leader, a servant leader in your organization. And it's all predicated, Mary, on trust. Yes. I was going to say, you've just also laid out for those who, again, think that this is all too squishy or too wishy-washy or not important, I mean, you've literally just laid out the business case for it. There is a financial cost to employee turnover and certainly to accidents, right? And compensation claims and that sort of thing. So I would say this. I would invite this to anyone who who has questions about it or maybe has maybe a, they want to play devil's advocate or, or they say it's too squishy or whatever. Well, here's the cool thing. Similar to this code I'm wearing, my invitation to anyone is like, hey, if you're okay with the results that you're getting, fine, because we're perfectly designed to get what we've always got, provided we do what we've always done. If there's something that you're not, that you're like, eh, we could probably do a little bit better in this area. Well, I'm inviting you to maybe try on the coat. And if the coat doesn't fit, take it off. It's not something like, this is not an imposed style that you, that you need to take on. But I do invite everyone to try it out. And you might be super surprised on the outcomes that come from that. 
I think the way you're describing it, whether we know it or not, safety is by default a leadership position, regardless of where you are officially on the on the org chart. You were talking about a safety mindset. So the safety leaders are leading that mindset or shutting it down, depending on how they do their job, right? Yes, that's actually a really good distinction there too. I mean, as a safety leader, you have the ability to change people's mindsets. You also have the ability to shut it down and, and just propagate more of that you know, safety cop mentality or see they're all like this or, or whatever it is. So again, with great power comes huge responsibility. That's right. We're going to have to pay Sony for that. <laughs> oh, is that, is that a Sony thing? No, well, it's Spider-Man who's owned by Sony. Oh, really? I didn't know that. <laughs> well, it is, yeah. Okay, there we go. I wanted to ask about demographic shifts in safety leadership. So it's no secret that the boomers are retiring. And maybe that was accelerated a little with COVID. But there are these new theories and ideas coming in. There's also sort of, you could say an old guard, although just because you're older doesn't mean you're you're using older ideas. Mm -hmm. But what effect do you think this is going to have on safety leadership? Do you think that younger people are maybe more open to new ideas? Again, this is a huge generalization, but, or do you think that there's a danger that there's going to be a big loss of knowledge as experienced people leave? And you're specifically speaking about the safety industry? The safety industry, yeah. I don't think that we're at risk whatsoever. I think the safety industry is a relatively new industry and I believe that most organizations use safety as a conduit to bring in new ideas to organizations. At least that's been my, my experience. So there's plenty of seasoned, tenured safety professionals with some, maybe some older thought processes who some come along and some are stuck in their ways. I believe that the younger generations are more open to some of the more forward-thinking ideas around safety and how to move the needle around culture perspectives and things of that nature. But so with that being said, in addition to the the knowledge gap, I think that's how you said it. Yeah, I think that's what some people are concerned about. Yeah. Mary, I, this is the way I look at it. Safety can be taught to anyone who's interested in wanting to know about safety. That's a teachable thing. Like I want to say if we're specifically speaking about the knowledge, knowledge is taught. Right. And if you're passionate about it, you're, you're going to be just fine. I think one of the hiccups of the younger generation, and, and again, this is overgeneralizing as well, is that there might be this, I want to get to the top as quick as I possibly can. I think that there is some of that in our industry, but it's, I don't think that's proprietary to safety alone. I think that's in all yeah, I, all industries, quite, quite frankly. But I, I think that might be a gap, but with some good leadership and good mentorship and maybe a, an internal sponsor that could help guide that through uh, an organization for sure. Do you think like of all the things that we've talked about, authenticity and building trust and, you know, inquiring about one's personal fear, that sort of thing. Do you think these are things that can be taught? Like you just said, safety can be taught, right? You know, that's, that's sort of technical. Do you think these are things that you can teach someone or is it a little more complex than that? It's much more complex than that. <laughs> Not a little, a lot. <laughs> it's much more complex. But here's the great thing. I think that it operates in a different space than understanding. I think that it operates in a space of getting it, which is completely different than understanding. I believe that all those things that you just discussed, they're always in the background. And every time you turn, they, they lie in a blind spot within yourself. And so very similar to riding a bike, you, you, know, you might be able to tell me how to ride a bike, but just because you told me how to ride a bike, that doesn't mean I know how to ride a bike. And the understanding of knowing how to ride a bike doesn't make it that someone knows how to ride a bike. Mm -hmm. But there's a moment in your life that you can't ride a bike. 
And then it literally happens in a nanosecond that it's just like all of a sudden you can now ride a bike. Yeah. And literally you could put that bike down, pick it up 20 years later. You won't be very good at it, but you could ride it again. And so that's why, I mean, it's happening outside of the understanding realm. It's happening in a something clicks and you actually get it. And it doesn't require an understanding of all of the physics and physiology and you know, forward momentum. And it, so I think that authenticity, trust and things like that, it's a matter of want. It's a matter of, do you want to do it? And then what happens is something clicks based on your trajectory of your want and the energy that you're putting in towards that want. And then all of a sudden it clicks. And then people will ask you, well, how did you get there? And then you'll, you'll be uh, tripping over your tongue the whole time on telling people how to get there because it doesn't operate in, in the same realm as learning mathematics or things of that nature. Just like riding a bike. Like, what do you do? How do you, how do you really tell? Well, you got to get on a bike. You got to put your feet on a pedal. Keep in mind gravity or gravity and balance. And all. remember, people who are riding a bike are starting to ride a bike. They're four years old. So what value does that add? Does that make sense? Somebody might call that subconscious or intuitive. Like it's not, again, you're not going to learn it in a book. Well, you can't, you can't learn it. It's not learned. It's accessed, maybe accessed, acquired. It's, I don't, I don't know how to, I'll say it, but it's not a learn, like learning to me, learning is learning about physics and learning about math. Learned behaviors or learned things can be forgotten. You cannot forget on how to ride a bike True. unless you get in a car accident. Thing. You cannot yeah. forget it. Even if you wanted to, Mary, you can't. And so I think that authenticity and trust, those are all things that operate in that same realm. Ingrained, maybe. Something that's just, I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be thinking about the vocabulary yeah. for this for a while. <laughs> I think truly what embodies it is... is um, you get it. It's something you get. Yeah. And it doesn't leave you. People describe it as a light going on, right? Yeah. So it's very important to understand this. So it's not a aha moment. It's not an insight, right? Because if it was an insight, insights go away as well. It's something that actually takes seed and now you have it. Mm. I know we're probably getting close to the end here, but what's really important too is in order, to, and a lot of times in order to make that shift or that pivot, you need to free up space. And what I mean by space, and again, you know, I know we're kind of being more of the theoretical and getting into the mind in this conversation, but it's it adds a lot of value when you when you understand that thoughts take up space, you'll realize real quickly that just like a computer, there's not much memory here, right? And as things are more when they're more impressionable to you, those will take a forward seat in your memory, and so there's only so much space there. And there's, but there are things in your mind that have shaped you who you are today. And that was where we talked about a little bit earlier in the beginning. And those things that you believe who you are, even though it's kind of a, an inherited way of being, it was the ego kind of nestling these things in there. And, and you start to realize that subconsciously, these are things that you're sabotaging your forward movement in life. In order to actually create something new and get something different, you have to understand what caused you to be who you are today. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily have to get directly to the source, but you got to get close to the source. And then you need to reconcile with that and recognize that you agreed with that statement, whatever it was. And that's been propagating through your whole life. And in the moment that you can reconcile with that, you can actually free that space up. And then only then, Mary, when you have that free space in your mind, do you have access to creating something different and new and it's sustainable right? And it doesn't operate in the lens or in the frame or in the mindset of understanding. Yeah, (laughs) we are getting esoteric here, which is fine. I think everyone is interested in this kind of stuff. 
I'm going to move on and, and ask. So sure. taking our conversation as a whole, which has been pretty wide ranging, mm-hmm, it has. if our listeners take away only one thing, mm-hmm. what would you like that to be? I would say this in your life, do what you know lights you up and put your time and your energy towards that. If what you're doing right now doesn't light you up, you're doing yourself an injustice and you're doing the world an injustice. That's what I would say. And I know that's probably irrelevant to everything that we just talked about. But to me, that's where the value will be added for you. And that's where the value will be added for, for your country and the world. Yeah, no, I think it has to do with leadership, right? And in order to lead yourself, if that makes sense, you have to know where you're going. You have to know what direction you want to face, I suppose. So I have a couple of questions that I ask every guest at the end. Okay. If you were to develop some kind of curriculum or course for teaching tomorrow's safety professionals, and if we set aside all things regulatory and PPE and technical and all that kind of thing, what soft skill, as they call them, do you think would be the most important to help them develop? Again, maybe you can't teach them, but discuss with them and help them develop. Patience and empathy. <laughs> would be what I think would need to be developed. I mean, even people who are very empathetic and truth be told, that's something that I've struggled with my whole life was empathy and and I still do. So it's something I have to consciously make an effort towards, you know, seeing it from someone else's shoes. And then patience is is a virtue too, right? You want to make sure that people have the experience that you're being patient. And I guess maybe the last thing would be recognize that when you're listening to people, the inner voice is really the one that's digesting it and creating a meaning. And what you want to do when you're when you're listening to someone is feed that back to someone from a gist perspective to verify that there is true communication that has taken place. Right. Don't believe what you tell yourself about what you just heard. Make sure that you you check it out with with the person who was speaking to you. Is that, is yeah, that- yes? That's a very important thing. It's not ingrained in us. And sometimes it can seem like robotic a little bit, but when it's something really important, when a conversation is really important, it's best not just to nod your head and assume that what you, the meaning you just made is what's being communicated. It's best to try to feed it back and give the, the speaker the opportunity to clear up any miscommunication. Yeah, that's true. So often we think, well, you said this, those were my literal words, but what I meant was not that people are lying. It's just that the same word means different things to different people. Mm-hmm. If you could go back in time to the beginning of your safety career and you could only give yourself one piece of advice, what would that be? I don't know. I mean, what comes to my mind, I, I'm fearful to even say. <laughs> like what comes to my mind is like, grow up and take it seriously. Yeah. That's what I want to say. Like that, that's what came to my mind immediately. Yeah. It's funny. Like, I think when I ask people that something does pop into their mind right away and they, and then they stop and wonder if how that sounds right. But, um, that's the fear right there. It is. And it's tough. Even when you said patience, I thought, wow, patience is something that I really feel develops as a person ages and gets a little more perspective, but it's hard to go to your younger self and say, Hey, Grow up. Yeah. I mean, and you know, I know the question you asked previous was like, how do you, like, what was something that you would want to teach your, I mean, yeah, you can't really teach patients, but I think it's important that folks understand that that's going to add a significant amount of value to your career. Yeah. That it's actually important. Don't dismiss it kind of. And I like to qualify the statement about grow up, you know, again, like we said earlier in the podcast, it's like, I have historically been a, a very big risk taker, done most things that a lot of people wouldn't dream of. That's who I was when I came into the industry. And so that's why I say, grow up, (laughs) take it seriously. 
So now I'm not sure this is maybe a difficult question again, because our conversation was really wide ranging, but are there any resources like books or websites or speakers that you would recommend if there are listeners who might want to look more into any of the topics that we've talked about? Yeah, actually there is. So not necessarily relative to safety, but it, I mean, I think all things kind of tie together. Everything's communicating. Nothing happens in a vacuum. So I think it all all things that add value to your life, you're going to add value to how you operate in life. So I would say uh, anything Todd Conklin related with human organizational performance, I think he's got a few books that are, are worth looking into. I also know um, another gentleman who's got plenty of books out there, uh, Eckhart Tolle, and I think he lives near you, to be quite honest with you. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Eckhart Tolle is an amazing author. He's authored the book, A New Earth, a couple others as well, which are, are really good books. Um, so I'll say those two. So Todd Conklin, really safety specific, really forward thinking. People are not the problem. People are the solution. If you're going to fail, make sure it's a safe failure build safeguards into your process. That's Todd Conklin. Really, really great. That's something that will, if you're not you know, up to speed on human, a human performance or human organizational performance, that's great for self-development and really trying to look at your authentic self and dive deeper into that. I would say uh, Eckhart Tolle is a great, great author for that. Awesome. Well, where can our listeners find you on the web? They can find me at, well, I guess on LinkedIn. It's LinkedIn pretty much is the only exclusive social media that I subscribe to. The other ones have... <laughs> lost their... Yeah. <laughs> lost their shine. It took many years off my life because I found myself you know, going down that addicted, like just get sucked into it from the, the algorithms are sucking you in, right? And so LinkedIn is, uh, it's my professional business, digital business card is LinkedIn. So Chris Molden. Great. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in. And thanks so much for lending us your time, your ideas, and your authentic self, Chris. Thanks, Mary. It's been fun. I'd like to give a shout out to the Safety Labs by Slice team who operate on trust and care. And I think it shows. Bye for now. Safety Labs is created by Slice, the only safety knife on the market with a finger-friendly blade. Find us at sliceproducts.com. Until next time, stay safe.